0: listening to the We Lead Well podcast, where well-being matters. The show is brought to you in partnership with Progressive Masculinity and headteacherchat.com. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the We Lead Well podcast. I'm Vicki McGuire. I'm an education and leadership coach working with school leaders to support them to improve their own well-being and that of all their staff. I also run group coaching programs for women leaders, and I've created the Women Lead Well Coaching Network to provide a supportive network for female school leaders. It's a shared space where women in education can come together to support each other and champion each other. It's also a place where they can connect with like-minded women, share their challenges, and just be reassured they're not on their own, basically. And I've decided to offer membership of the Women Lead Well Network for free currently, so... If you would like to join, just email me. It's Vicky at we and we would love to have you join us in the network. Today's show is sponsored by Schools UK. Schools UK are a company that provide supply cover insurance. They've been doing this for 24 years. And what I love about them is that they offer, alongside their supply cover insurance, the wellbeing package and as part of their well-being package all of the staff in your school not just your teachers can access face-to-face counseling and that includes up to six sessions of face-to-face counseling not over the phone there are musculoskeletal services which include acupuncture and physio you can have up to four to five sessions of that generally and they are part of the employment assistant pro assistance program And that's open to all family members of of your school staff. And they deal with all sorts of things, family-related issues, bereavement, trauma, relationships, stress. So there are so many benefits to the wellbeing package. The main one, and one of the reasons why I'm really strongly supporting Schools UK in, in what they're doing with their wellbeing package, is that there is access to a GP So if a member of your school staff needs to speak to a GP, they can go online first thing in the morning and get themselves an appointment that day with a GP online, which I think is absolutely magnificent because lots of teachers in schools are not seeing GPs about things because they're struggling to get appointments and they can't go during the school day. And for me, that's causing issues further down the line. So to have this as part of the package is amazing. And also, if you if you sign up to a package with Schools UK, you can use the discount code We We Lead Well podcast, and you can get ten percent off your insurance premium, which is absolutely amazing. So Schools UK. Are sponsoring the show. Today on the show, I've got an interview with Katrina Lowry. I absolutely loved this interview. Katrina is absolutely amazing. She's just fantastic, and she knows so much about neurodivergence. Her, her honestly, her knowledge is is completely second to none. She's actually a qualified special needs teacher and an experienced SENCO and she launched her website NeuroTeachers recently and there's lots of information on there for educators with regard to how you can support teachers in your school who are neurodivergent. She has also got a real passion for inclusion And she's trained as a specialist lead trainer and she delivers lots of training in schools on how to support pupils who are neurodivergent and staff. So it was absolutely great to welcome her to the show. I'm sure you're going to really enjoy this interview and find out how many things you don't know you don't know. So here she is, Katrina Lowry katrina lowry welcome to the we lead well podcast it's a pleasure to have you with us today how are you
1: i'm very well thank you nice to meet you properly
0: it's really nice to meet you too i'm very excited about this interview um for reasons that will become apparent as we start recording so would you like to start by introducing yourself to the listener tell us a bit
1: about who you are and what you do and how you've ended up where you are now Sure, absolutely. Uh, So my name's Katrina Lowry, Um, I am the founder and director of NeuroTeachers, so that's my neuro-inclusion business. I work with schools, nurseries, colleges and businesses to improve neuro-inclusion for uh, people of all ages. I'm neurodivergent myself, I was a teacher in school for 23 years, latterly I worked as an an advisory teacher in a SENCO, and I've just got a real passion for neuro inclusion. Um, I found that uh, I had quite an interesting experience of school myself as a neurodivergent child in the 80s and 90s when these things were not really well thought of and not really well understood. So I was diagnosed with dyslexia at the age of nine and uh, I had to bring this big brown envelope into school and give it to my head teacher, Mr. Ives, who looked an awful lot, lot like the head teacher in um, The Demon Head Teacher. He looks a lot <laughs> <laughs> it's a Big guy with grey hair and big glasses, really, really tall, like over six foot tall. And I had to give him this envelope. And uh, then he he moved me to a uh, women's class, Mrs. Solly, and it was right down the end of the bottom end of the school field. And it was this very cold classroom where we mainly seemed to do colouring in. I'm not really mm. sure how supposed to help me. Um, but, yeah, they called it the remedial class, which was nice. Because uh, in those days you used to use language like that, didn't you? Yeah. And then, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate insofar as I have the privilege of having parents who are psychiatrists, so you know, had enough money and understanding of the situation to be able to get me a diagnosis in the 80s, which was a rare thing, mm-hmm. also to be able to pay for me to have private tuition and also spend an awful lot of time with me at the weekends and evenings making sure that I got to the right level of literacy and numeracy that I needed to do to be able to function so i was reasonably okay by the time i got to secondary school i could read and write a bit if you see what i mean and i got through gcses because i had tutors really Uh, a b was my a you know that's how it was and um but during university i did this thing called student tutoring which was like you were supposed to because i was in the east end of london i went to queen Mary westfield college um and you were supposed to go to schools and encourage children from more working class backgrounds to go to university. But basically what you were doing was you were just an extra pair of hands in the class. kind of. Yeah. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I really loved the kids. I was in this this boys school called Bow School for Boys, which was really quite rough and really good fun. And I absolutely loved it. And I went to teach drama, which is not a subject that I knew anything particularly mm-hmm. about. And I just ha- helped the drama teacher with lessons. So I decided that I would become a, a teacher. And I had a dyslexia tutor at university. At that point, it was fully funded because, you know, in the nineties, you were still a bit more funded as a student. And she helped me to do the application to get into university. And I, so I managed to get onto a PGc course, which I found a massive struggle with. Um, because of my mental health because I'm I'm bipolar so I had a huge manic episode in the middle of my PGCE Mm -hmm. but subsequently I managed to pass it and then went into teaching and then pretty much for about 17 years I completely hid any of my neurodivergent needs like I managed to mask really really well because I'm quite proficient at pretending to be to act neurotypically And uh, and then, you know, my life circumstances meant I had another huge breakdown and I just couldn't mask anymore. And um, this this affected my work quite significantly. So I ended up leaving and I decided that I was going to set up NeuroTeachers because my feeling is, is that really we don't have. We don't have proper we don't have proper inclusion for neurodivergent children. Uh, the statistics are, are very poor. If you've got if you've got neurodivergent needs, you're six times more likely to get excluded from school. There was another report last week which told us the same thing. They've been churning out for years. Um, if you know, it, for, uh, amongst anxious non-attenders, we've got hun- hundreds of thousands, and that's no exaggeration, of children who are anxious non-attenders in schools. And my feeling is is that if we can get the universal provision right. And that's the thing that's going to make the biggest difference so that's what I kind of concentrate on in my work and in order to do that I think that we need to have reasonable adjustments for the neurodivergent teachers as well as for the pupils.
0: So this is why I'm really interested in what you have to say today because there are two elements to your work aren't there? There's supporting neurodivergence in the student population and supporting teachers and i think one of the things it was interesting because i was doing some work with a senior leadership team and they one of them all of a sudden had this um like a eureka moment where she said well hang on because if x number of our pupils are neurodivergent then that means that probably x number of our staff are neurodivergent as well and Because, like you're talking about, back in the 1980s, which would be when people our age went to school, and I don't about you. You sound like you're about the same age as me. I'm heading towards my 50s. Yeah,
1: I'm 48. So yeah.
0: So people, yeah. So people who were our age were not diagnosed at school, and and people. I mean, I I've been referred for assessment for ADHD at 47 years old, and that would not have been recognised at school, but there are people who have symptoms that are, not symptoms, but traits that were probably more recognisable than than mine who were not identified at school as having any sort of special need. Mm -hmm. So we do have a lot of teachers working in schools, don't we, who are probably not necessarily aware themselves even and I mean, they probably are aware themselves in in some ways, but have never made that something that's known to colleagues or senior leaders in the school. Mm-hmm. So, what does that mean for us in schools? Because we're still lagging behind, aren't we? Like, mm-hmm. I know I don't think S. E. M. Provision is is as good as it could be still in inclusion, but it's way ahead of where it was back in the nineteen eighties and nineties when you and I went to school. Mm-hmm. But obviously, workplaces and schools, in terms of staff, are lagging behind because of that, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So, what can we do about that? I don't know that that's like a huge, massive question that you could
1: easy <laughs> <It is laughs> challenge, Vicky. So
0: I'll okay, good, good. So what can we do
1: about it? I think the first thing is yeah, I mean, recognizing recognizing that as a, as a staff body, if twenty percent of the population of the world are neurodivergent, that's a lot. You know, um, understanding that the, the umbrella term neurodivergence, obviously it's a social construct rather than a diagnosis. So there's a huge number of different neurodivergent conditions under that umbrella, um, the vast majority of which are relatively common. So things like autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, um, developmental coordination disorder, as it, as dyspraxia is also called. Um, they're very common very very common you know so anywhere between 1 in 8 and 1 in 28 of a, of a population basically so really really common so the height it's highly highly likely that you've got ones of stuff that would be the other thing is as well there's a good there are good reasons why neurodivergent people would be attracted to teaching for example if you have a special interest Why not stand up in front of people and speak about it for eight hours, six to eight hours a day? What, how brilliant is that? Like, you know, your enthusiasm is going to come across. You're going to be spending all your time, you know, researching and excited about this particular topic. Why not let that enthusiasm come across to the next generation of learners? So, you know, that's why you know autistic ADHD people particularly known. I mean, we all have special interests in neurodivergent people, but it's particularly a thing with autistic ADHD people. So why not do that? That makes perfect sense. Um again with ADHD, you're always on your feet, no two days are the same, even though you've got a timetable, there's lots and lots of change. If you, you if you're if you crave novelty, that's a really great thing to do. Plus the other thing is about about um, ADHD is hyper focus. Got some wicked hyper focus sitting down and get super into like some statistics or like you know researching something or doing like a whole scheme of work on grammar for year eight or whatever super duper amazing like if you've got adhd that's going to be giving you all those dopamine hits it's great you know dyslexic people tend to have this amazing helicopter view so strategically speaking we make. Pretty good strategic leaders because we have a really good broad overview. We can see all the different cogs and wheels and how they all fix, fit together. So there's a huge strength there. Um, there's a lot of different strengths that neurodivergent people have that would naturally at- attract them to the structure of being within a school. And also, as well, in terms of relating to pupils who have additional needs. You know, there's that whole thing about you see what you you can become what you see. You know if you're if you're a, a child who has neurodivergent needs and you can see that there's somebody else who has gone through and got a degree in a you know postgraduate qualification and has got a good job because even though things in schools are pretty crummy at the moment it's still a good job in fact it's a really great job then it makes perfect sense so first of all in terms of leadership is recognizing that there's lots of neurodivergent teachers we actually have an awful lot of strengths third thing is, we're still going to need some accommodation, right? I don't deal well with ambiguity, for example, right? If there's like a rule or you ask me to do something, I'm going to do it exactly as you told me to do it. So if you want me to do it differently, then you need to tell me to do it differently. And I have to put all of these organizational things steps ahead of me doing the thing that is that you want me to do. So don't, whatever you do, move the goalposts because I'm not going to be able to cope. My executive function will come crashing down and I'll have a huge meltdown about it. Probably not in front of you, probably at home with my partner, but, you know. So understanding that reasonable adjustments need to be made and then understanding that everyone is an individual. And I've started working a bit with businesses now. One of the things that schools don't quite, haven't necessarily got there with businesses do understand in terms of neurodivergent talent which is what it's called in the business field neurodivergent talent is that rather than having culture fit which is going to make an organization stagnate and stay the same and make very little progress what you really want is culture change and in order for you to have culture change you need diversity and one of the types of diversity is neurodiversity Because you need different kinds of minds and brains in order to flourish. Like, if you didn't employ somebody because they were neurodivergent, look at all the talent you're losing. So it makes perfect sense. Plus, finally, we're in this whole situation where there's a huge retention and recruitment process. Wasn't it something like forty thousand people resigned last year or something? It's huge. It's it's
0: it's a a huge crisis and it's unless the government does something about it everything's going to just come crashing down around (laughs)
1: us. yeah i I think to be honest it already is i mean there are there are schools that i'm hearing of where kids yeah not have do not have teacher you know um i've heard of schools this week where you know there's a year there are year nines who haven't ever had a qualified science teacher in three years so
0: I've, I've, yeah, I've just, I've just. Someone was saying they've got three. They're in a primary school and they've got three vacancies for mm-hmm. teachers. Yeah, and,
1: it, and this will happen in in September. We'll be in a case where there will be a, there will be classrooms with children but without children. So there's a huge lack of talent, and there's this group of people who are massively underemployed. And if you could find some way, if, it, you know, there's a lot that could appeal about working in school for neurodivergent people. So you've got this talent over here and you've got this industry that needs people over here. If we could find ways to bridge that gap, then it could be really, really exciting. And it could be something that would be so mutually beneficial both for the, the, the neurodivergent teachers and also for the pupils because you know you've got one in 20 of the pupil population who would have a fantastic role model in an educator who gets it
0: i think one of the difficulties is and i don't uh, maybe you've experienced this because you you say you you know you're bipolar the stigma attached mm-hmm. to mental health conditions and being neurodivergent that people I I'm I'm struggling a little bit to say to people I've been referred for diagnosis for ADHD Mm -hmm. it makes me squirm a little bit but Mm -hmm. I know that it impacted on my ability to do my job Mm -hmm. as a deputy head forgetting to go for a lesson observation for example because I've not written it down as soon as I've made the arrangement and you know someone today who was in my zoom room and i was like I don't seem to have this in my diary check my emails oh yeah i do have a meeting so things like that where you know it does have it it did have an impact on me but i would have possibly been reluctant to let my employer know that that was the case mm-hmm. that's that's the difficulty isn't it because things can be put in place but there's a stigma attached to it oh yeah I think there still is a stigma attached
1: oh yeah there's a huge stigma attached there's a huge stigma attached you know like uh, I as I said I kind of went on a bit of a journey with it insofar as I qualified back in the late 90s and during my PGC I was quite you know I, I you know I, I I'm dyslexic I didn't know it was bipolar at that point because I didn't get diagnosed at the age of 32, whole other story but the dyslexia I knew about and I was quite comfortable about talking about it so I said you know to my course leaders would you be happy for me to you know do a little talk on it so I did and like 30 odd people came up out of the course of 200, 30 people came because it was voluntary um, and then at the end this chap said to me oh, well, you see, this is how it goes. If you're working class like me, then you're just thick. But if you're posh like you, then you're dyslexic. And then after that, I just never said anything to anybody because I thought, okay, well, in that case, that's people just think it's an excuse that I'm making an excuse. So for 17 years, I didn't tell a single person that I worked with that was dyslexic. Even when other teachers told me they were dyslexic, I still didn't say anything because I was really ashamed. And with the bipolar as well, you get people, there is, there's a huge amount of stigma against it. There's even stigma in the neurodivergent community, to be honest. Um, You know, I maintain that bipolar is a a neurodivergent condition because it makes my brain different. So Mm. even though I'm medicated and even though I have therapy, my brain is physically different to other people's because of my bipolar. it is because of my dyslexia there's a lot going on in my whole little you know fruit salad of a brain but you know the bipolar is one reason why physiologically my brain is a different shape and size to other people who are not bipolar so therefore I call it a neurodivergent condition even amongst the neurodivergent community I'll get people telling me that it's not and I'll go no actually it is because this is the definition and that's why and this is my experience and I can say I'm quite you know I'm quite confident to say that because it's a social movement it's not a diagnosis so it is difficult it's really difficult it's very difficult as a teacher to say and it was only really my last two jobs where I said I was bipolar Um, the first job was because I didn't have any choice because I got sick and the responses were not good right in the second job I was much better I was much more accommodated so my final job in teaching I was really very well accommodated because of it but then that was a very small school where I'm pretty certain most of the staff are neurodivergent so there are places where there's acceptance but you're right there's a huge there's a massive journey to undertake I think the more of us as neurodivergent you know, educators and former educators who say this is what's happening and this is my experience etc the more acceptance there will be and just simply because there's not enough teachers right if you're a senior leader you're running a multi-academy trust a local authority etc you're like at that level where you've got like all of these things you're gonna have to do something different it's time for change management I mean there's a lot of government stuff as well yes there is a lot of government stuff but we probably are going to have to make the job much more appealing.
0: And in terms of DEI, I I feel like neurodivergence is not, is it ironic that it's not, I don't think it's included as much in the Mm -hmm. work that's happening in terms of DEI. I, I don't know if I'm wrong about that, but that's the sense that I've got that there's still more work to do in terms of DEI and neurodivergence.
1: I think it's coming up now. Insofar as I I'm I work with a number of companies who I I do DI work as a neurodivergent consultant for businesses, but also more recently for schools. So you know, for example, I work with diverse educators, Hannah, Hannah Wilson. Uh, right.
0: Okay. Yes. Yes. And,
1: you know and, and I've done some work with some other organisations as well. So there's a few. There's a few who who are understanding that, you know, it is it, it comes under the categories of non-visible disabilities. Mm. And again, this is something that I, I, I do quite a lot of work with the National Education Union. Like I'm a member, but also I've done a, a fair few conferences for them. And I, you know, I, I talk to their sort of disabilities representatives. And it took me a while to put down on my form that I'm disabled. I actually had to be talked into it because I felt like that's not my, you know, I can't identify in that way. That shouldn't be allowed for me to identify in that way. And then, you know, the person who I was speaking to at the union said, well, no, actually, you are disabled by the fact that you live in a neurotypical world. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's true. I do, I am, aren't I? So it's not not my my neurodevelopmental differences that disable me it's the fact that i live in a neurotypical world so one of the things that is a huge huge leap is to say that you're disabled to 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 have that as part of your identity and that took me years to get to that point
0: mm. i've um <laughs> i've um, i'm you, you'll be this well. I'm assuming you'll be the same. I'm perimenopausal, mm-hmm. and I can at the moment have, I can have an idea in my head and be thinking something, and then the next second, it's just totally gone out of my head. And that's that's my experience. It generally comes back if I can just talk through it for about twenty seconds, the idea will generally come back into my head. But my experience at the moment is that things are just dropping out of my head. <laughs> I can't can't grab them I think what I was what I was thinking about was what sort of reasonable adjustments if you're if you are a head teacher or uh, on a senior leadership team thinking about how you can be more accommodating of neurodivergence what types of reasonable adjustments could be expected Mm -hmm. I think about myself and think you know I, I brought so much creativity to my role that's that's sort of I suppose my superpower is my my creativity but my lack of organization my anxiety linked to it is quite severe because there's always an underlying nagging anxiety that I've not done something I've forgotten something I've missed something but I don't know how that could have been accommodated for I mean, Probably if I thought about it, there'd be other other impacts on me as well in terms of executive functioning. Mm -hmm. But what types of reasonable adjustments would be appropriate for?
1: Mm -hmm. I think. um, Right. The first thing is all anybody who works is 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 entitled to access to work funding. Right. I don't know whether you've had yours because you would be entitled to it as a. Right. Point. But I've, I've just recently had mine through and it's a grant of up to 60,000 pounds to help you and your organization to make adjustments for yourself. So firstly, it's to know that help is available and the it, it wouldn't necessarily have to be the either the the head teacher or, you know, your HR or whatever who did the assessment. They have their own assessors. And the assessors will come to your place of work and they will look around and they will talk to the person in some depth and talk to their line manager. And they'll make a plan and say, we can offer you X, Y, Z and this is how much funding we can give you. And um, if you get that funding within the first six weeks of being in a place of work, you can get a hundred percent of that back and uncertain under certain other circumstances, you can get hundred percent of the money back. Now the, the employer will have to put some money up front, but you can claim it all back. Right. Right. So that's really worth having, because the thing is like, you don't even need to know what reasonable adjustments you need. You need an access to work assessment and somebody will come and assess you and help you with that. Right. So that's, that's really great. And I've just, I'm, I'm just in the process of getting mine now and it's, already making a massive difference to my day-to-day work but things like you can have a PA like a PA can be paid for like not necessarily a full-time PA but somebody who could do a couple of hours admin for you a week right you aren't through that and that would make a huge difference um there's you know all kinds of virtual software etc that can help you with organizational stuff you know automated calendar services um things that have ai in that can you know help with things like structuring report writing or um there's just so much (laughs) basically there's so much that you can have but you
0: don't know what you don't know right
1: the thing this is the thing right i didn't know i didn't know him right and i'm like i am quite um i'm quite an early adopter when it comes to tech right because I learned to use spell check pretty much as soon as it ever came out on a computer, yeah. you know, way back. So I'm dyslexic, right? 48 years old, I've got a master's degree. I don't really understand vowels. I've never really understood what the purpose of vowels is, and I can't tell the difference between A and A and there. I've taught phonics, I'm really good at it, right? I know all the theory, but when it comes to actually writing stuff down, the vowel that I could that I give you is completely potluck. I've got no idea how they all work together on a page. So I use tech. You know, I everything I write is done voice to text. Pretty much everything, including like tweets. Everything is done voice to text. Okay. Right? I get everything read back to me. I do everything by audiobook. You know, I am a really early, early adopter of anything that comes out AI. I'm all over it. You know, <laughs> like how much time can this save me?
0: Before we hear more from Katrina about how you can support neurodivergence in your school, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our partner, Head Teacher Chat. Head Teacher Chat discusses lots of topics from how to support pupils with learning, how to support parents, and the many issues that come with leading a school. The aim of Head Teacher Chat is to support head teachers and school leaders who are in a challenging and often lonely role. They do this by offering lots of information for schools to tap into. For example, they have lots of fantastic education companies on their database for leaders to discover, as well as leadership templates to download. They've written product reviews for leaders who are looking for products for their school. And this year, they've even launched the very first School Leader Planner, especially designed to help leaders to be productive and organised. If you'd like to hear more about Headteacher Chat, you can find them on their website at www.headteacherchat.com. Headteacher Chat. It's what her teachers are talking about.
1: Now, let's get back to the interview. How, you know, um, so there's a lot of things that you can have, but it is the thing is about it is when you are in the moment and you're just thinking, holy moly, my line manager has asked me to have X, Y, Z by three o'clock on Friday. And I've got no idea what X, Y, Z is or where to even start with it because my executive function is all over the place. And I've had a shocker a week and that year nine had given me hell. And I've got this parent over here and da, 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 da. Task initiation is all over the place with that. You know, that's just a huge problem. So it, having somebody who's external to the school to come in and tell you, look, these are the things. That, this is what this this is what I'd recommend for this person. These are the things you need. It takes months to apply, but it's totally worth doing. Yeah.
0: And and this is why this episode of the podcast is so important, because the more people listen to that, the more school leaders listen to that, the more we can access the help and the funding that's required. Like I think, wow, if I'd been able to access a PA for two hours a week, oh, it would have changed my life.
1: It is. Honestly, I have a PA for six hours a week. It's partly paid for. Um, I, I've got a grant for it. Actually, it's not really paid for through that. But she like, honestly, it's it has revolutionized the way I live in my life. Just having somebody else to tell me where I should be and what time. Because <laughs> I can't manage my own calendar once I said it to New York time that's uh that's
0: what's happened to me in the past so yeah Um, but i I, like joking aside the issue as well is that people don't have diagnoses do they Mm -hmm. and i'm assuming to get access to work funding you've you've had no right okay so you don't know what you don't know even more than you you don't even know what you don't know you don't know
1: no (laughs) do not need to have a diagnosis in order to access access to work it's the same principle as it is with the send act insofar as you don't have to have a diagnosis for a child to have an HCP, do you you don't have to have a child for a, ch- for a child to be on the SEN register you just have to have evidence okay so if you've got evidence that you know you suspect such and such especially if you're on a diagnostic pathway that's good enough honestly because the thing is right for an adult diagnosis for autism can be anything for three to five years you know, it's yeah. not going to be a quick process. I mean, look at me with bipolar. Yeah. So I had my first manic episode when I was 22. I didn't get diagnosed to 32. Yeah. And, and and bear in mind, my parents are psychiatrists. Right. I'm in a family where we really are very informed about these things. Yeah. And I'm a, you know, middle class educated woman who can navigate the NHS and all the foibles that it has. You know, me, you know, God bless it. I wouldn't be where I am today without the NHS. But, you know, it's not easy to... Psychiatric services are the Cinderella service of the Cinderella service. So it's really Mm -hmm. hard to access, but it took me 10 years. So what it's like for somebody who has absolutely no idea what to do. So no, you don't. You don't need a diagnosis in order to get access to work. You just need to have needs which need to be met.
0: Okay. And again, um, the perimenopausal brain fog hits and it's dropped out of my head again, but there it is, it's come back. The need for education for people working in schools as well is really important, isn't it? Because I think especially for ADHD, and I suppose I'm a little bit focused on ADHD because it's my experience, but like for, for ADHD in girls and women is very different from what we as educationalists have come to well, Come to believe ADHD is where it's boys who struggle to concentrate and can't still and can be disruptive, etc. And it and it was only because my son was going through the process of being referred for diagnosis for ADHD and autism that I started to do research into ADHD. And obviously, I started to watch some videos on women who had ADHD, and I was like, wow you're describing me and until that point there'd been no i, I wasn't even aware it, again it's a case of you don't know what you don't know i wasn't aware that all of the ways that i was presenting were consistent with adhd and women so that and also maybe some people don't recognize that they're autistic either no and and it's a we have to educate people in organization, schools, society, mm-hmm. as to what characteristics you might have
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and what the characteristics of different um, different types of conditions would be mm-hmm. so that you can identify yourself as neurodivergent. So mm-hmm. uh, how how would you suggest schools go about providing information for staff so that they might be able to go, oh, actually Mm -hmm. I I recognize some of those characteristics maybe I need to do something about that
1: I think well okay I in an ideal world we'd have a national strategy so I'm in Wales I'm quite lucky insofar as we're a little bit ahead of the curve in Wales we always have been a little bit with Mm. additional needs in Wales so I'm in Cardiff and um I'm I'm working with Autism Wales. So Autism Wales is going to morph into neurodiversity Wales over the next couple of years. We have a neurodi- we have a national neurodiversity strategy in Wales and the aim is that over the next five years we will move towards all teachers having neurodiversity training at least for one like inset day a year or equivalent and that um, all initial teacher training students will have to have a module on neurodiversity as part of their training in Wales which is awesome but um, it's really really at its beginning stage at the moment I'm just sort of talking to them I'm doing an initial sort of um, webinar actually this Wednesday where I've got a couple of hundred people coming along to listen to that and I'm hoping to develop a full training program with them about this and you know i mean for example i mean i offer neurodiversity training so one of the things i could say is you can come to me and i'll help you um and you there of are, course there are our website there are information about that on my website if you'd like some neurodiversity training for your school please do come to me but i mean in terms of a national strategy we need everybody to have regular training in what actually is in fact neurodiversity and how to go about supporting it in the classroom and there are some very simple pieces of information which are extremely helpful firstly that neurodiversity is neurodivergent needs are common neurodiversity is all the brains and minds that we have including neurotypical neurodivergent is anything that is not neurotypical
0: okay and that's something that most people wouldn't know most people wouldn't
1: Yeah, most people don't know that, right? So neurodiverse means everyone. Neurodivergent means specifically people who have a different kind of mind and brain, yeah? And that's 20% of people, so it's a lot, right? So if you think a child is neurodivergent, they probably are. And if you think you are neurodivergent, especially if there's other members of your family, whether it's your children or your grandparents, you're probably right. So that's the first thing is, Self-ID is completely valid as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you don't have to go through the diagnostic process if it's not right for you. You know, for example, like I said at the beginning, you know, I like to use the the analogy of a fruit salad approach. This is an idea that came from Donna Williams, who is an Australian singer, songwriter and autistic advocate. And she talked about her neurodivergent needs as being like a fruit salad insofar as there are separate ingredients, but they go together to make the same dish. And I really like that idea because I have two identified neurodivergent conditions insofar as the bipolar and the dyslexia, but I identify traits of ADHD, dyspraxia and auditory processing disorder in myself. So I prefer to talk about myself as being a fruit salad rather than complex and hard to reach and all those kind of negative things. So I think understanding that, right, so we've got understanding what neurodivergence and what neurodiversity means, understanding that it's really common, understanding if you think it is, then it probably is, and also understanding that it's really, really likely that there's a fruit salad in front of you. If if you're not sure they're 100% autistic, et cetera, it's because they're probably a little bit ADHD and dyslexic as well because most people aren't just one thing. Mm. 70 to 75% chance that you've got two or more co-occurring conditions because most of us do have so just understanding those little things and then there are some basic things that you need to know about the human brain which so you can make adjustments like just on the fly which could make a huge massive difference to the classroom experience of that child the learning of that child and your teaching And they're very small and subtle things, but if you do them well and you do them consistently, they will make a huge difference. And it's thinking that, you know, like differentiation has been like a dragon that people have battled with for years like years and years and years people get so fed up with it and there's like I've read a million blogs saying you don't need to do differentiation it's a load of rubbish and I've read a million blogs saying oh yeah differentiation is the best thing ever only now we're going to call it scaffolding up or quality first teaching or adapt-
0: adaptive teaching
1: <laughs> yeah it's adaptive teaching now that's what I call it on my website now because that's what everyone calls it now adaptive teaching but basically it's the same thing which is that you take the ideas And the pedagogy and you see the child in front of you and you adapt the ideas to the way the child learns and then the child learns (laughs) (laughs) Um, so understanding those things if we get universal provision right it's going to make a massive massive difference and like you said before people don't know what they don't know it's not like they're doing it like you know most people are doing a really great job really really fantastic job but there are probably things they could do to make their life a bit easier and that that's just kind of what I want to help with really
0: and what what are we we've we've moved into which is good because I wanted to move into how we can support young people more effectively what are the simple things that I was never really trained in how to teach autistic young people I, I just I learned things along the way, I picked things up and I would, you know, try different things and try to get to know the child and work things out for myself. Really, But I never had a, a course. This is a toolkit that you can use or anything specific with regard to training. So if teachers haven't had training or if there are senior leaders listening to this, what are some really simple things that they could get their staff to do or that teachers could do that could make a real difference?
1: Well there's some really straightforward things so I have written a course about this Um, it is available there is going to be a live course um, where I'm going to be teaching that online over six weeks which is called embracing neurodiversity through adaptive teaching I'm then going to be doing that as an online course so it'll be a pre-recorded one so the, one of the things that you can do its really easy is sign on to the course, which will be available. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but in terms of my top tips, the thing that's made the biggest difference is understanding processing time. So the average neurotypical person takes six seconds to process an instruction. So if I just pause for six seconds, it's like this. So that probably feels like quite a long pause, but that's how much 80% of people would need that long to respond to an instruction, a single step instruction. So if you think about that, right, so that's in terms of somebody who's got, you know, typical processing time would take six seconds. So if you think about us in the classroom, we're like, right, everybody, okay, so year six, and what I want you to do is, I want you to go over to your drawers and get out your writing book, and then you need to get your reading book out, and then you want to turn to page sixty-seven, and in and there, right, everyone back in their seats now. Uh, one, two, three, eyes on me. Like, hang on, what? <laughs> How are you supposed to process any of that? That's impossible, right? And also, it's exhausting for the teacher. So, saying less words and pausing between each instruction right honestly it's delightful it makes such a massive difference if you just give the six seconds it will make a difference to 80 percent of the children in your class if you then multiply that for your neurodivergent um, children and you give them a chunk of time to process something then that makes tremendous difference so the best practice that I've ever seen of this was at a grammar school so there's this boy called Blaine ADHD autistic dyslexic dyspraxic boy he's in a grammar yeah he's very very bright very bright boy and he came in the top 10% for the grammar school entry exams but they are phenomenal at making reasonable adjustments this school I cannot speak highly enough of them very very inclusive in terms of the ability of the children who go there so the English teacher they were doing a poem this year 8 they're doing a poem <clears throat> English teacher went to him and went Blaine I want you to look at the the use of similes and metaphors to create the characterization of the of blah 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 in this poem okay I'm going to give you three minutes and I'm going to come back to you and then I want you to explain what you th- thought to the class so I went away Worked with the rest of the class. They read through the whole poem together, et cetera, et cetera. And then they had a class discussion about it, and they started with Blaine. So Blaine, can you talk about the use of similes and metaphors, et cetera, just repeated the question to him. And he just gave the most phenomenal answer, like absolutely really understood the poem in depth, right? And also as well, the rest of the class had the benefit of his intelligence, right? And then he was able to follow along with what everybody else was doing because he'd been given three minutes processing time right and he needed he needed 15 seconds at least to reply right so the teacher had given him the instruction and then he'd ask a a returning question 50 this teacher just waited just waited 15 seconds he knew he was going to get it from him didn't didn't repeat it or anything like that just let him come back replied to him and then went off worked with the rest of the class came back it was amazing right and i've seen some really good practice of that in lots and lots of different schools and that doesn't take any extra worksheets no extra ppa time on the behalf of that teacher it doesn't disrupt the learning of anyone else in fact it actually enhances everybody else's experience right and most of all blaine is able he's got high aspirations and he's able to meet them
0: and he's not completely stressed out
1: no because
0: there's too much information for him to process at the same time.
1: Yeah. And also as well, you know, using that amazing autistic hyperfocus. You know, he's like that teacher really understood how to play to that child's strengths. Right. And also as well, the rest of the class got it too, because they were hanging on what he was going to say because they knew it was going to be really useful for him. Now obviously Mm -hmm. they're highly motivated learners, it's a grammar school. But, you know, that that is that is the number one thing I would say is is. Give six seconds processing time for your instructions for everyone and then learn the processing time of the children that you have in the class and you're a divergent. Give it to them and play to their strengths. Top tip. I was
0: doing, um, having a conversation with someone once about um, some young people in the class who the teacher was struggling with and everybody else could sit down and this I think it was a particular boy who had ADHD but couldn't sit still on on the chair and the teacher was struggling with like how do I get him to sit sit down on the chair and stay still and Mm -hmm. whatever and I put the scenario of if there was a child in a wheelchair in your class you wouldn't make them get out of the wheelchair and sit on a chair because that's what everybody else is doing you would recognize that that child is in a wheelchair for a reason because they've got a particular need and that really just seemed to be like a key that unlocked a oh right of course yeah maybe I'm Mm -hmm. and 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 like you're saying sometimes it's difficult isn't it because when we can see a disability Mm -hmm. we can adapt Mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that we always adapt things as well as we could do for people with physical disabilities either but when you can see it you can see that adaptations need to be made and you can recognize that mm-hmm. but when you can't see it it can be more difficult can't it
1: well that's it that's why I had to come around to the idea of, of calling myself disabled Right. And also as well, I say I personally say non-visible disability rather than invisible disability because I don't want people to think it's not there. It's very, very real to me. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, if we start thinking of it of ADHD as a disability, then you it it, it falls into the realms of this isn't something that's deliberate or a choice. Is this one of the things really? It's this whole idea that behavior is a choice. Mm-hmm um ADHD the kind of like if you kind of like condense it down into what actually happens in the brain is that you're seeking dopamine right so you've got a lack of dopamine and the reason that the reason that you have to move all the time is because that gives you feedback and the feedback improves the dopamine so if you do something that gives the child feedback so that they can get the dopamine hit that they need then you'll extend the amount of time that they need to they they're able to sit still but then you have to think about the reason that you need them to sit still like you know is there the option for them to have a standing desk in the classroom could they be the person who goes around and gives out the pencils or glue sticks or whatever can they go you know down the corridor to the library and get a, a box of books so that they have a little movement break but you know but why the why you need to sit still why do you need them to sit still what is, well,
0: why, yeah.
1: like what's the point in that you know well yeah exactly what do you need to do that I mean I don't know about you but I'm stimming my heart out here I've got this little thing that I play with all the time I stim all the time you know like, you I- see
0: me with my pen <laughs>
1: We're doing that and we're grown-ups sort of thing. Like, and I can't like I've got a wheelie chair here, so I like, you know, I jiggle all the time. I no one sits still. You know, why do you need to sit still? There's no reason for it. We're not biologically programmed to do so. So it's a case of like, firstly, why do you need them to sit still? And secondly, what could you do in order to give them the dopamine that they need for a few minutes so that they can sit still for a bit? Because you're not going to get them to sit still for the whole lesson. It's just not possible. So give them a movement break in whatever way works for you. If you're a senko,
0: or, or, or even in a, in a, in a school, recognising... So my son's story was that we knew that there were things that were challenges for him from when he was younger. When he went to high school, he seemed to cope okay at primary school. And then when he went to high school, he really struggled in year seven. And, and um, I was in contact with the school and... I told them about my concerns about him, and they did some some initial tests. and it's interesting that you talk about the processing time because they identified then, and I didn't obviously know what you're telling me now, mm-hmm. that he had slow processing speeds. Mm-hmm. So he was then tested and he got extra exam exam time. Mm-hmm. But at that point, they didn't say he's got slow processing speed, so let's have a look into what his challenges are and whether he's facing any other challenges. Mm -hmm. And maybe he could have, but COVID got in the way really because he didn't get his referral for his diagnosis until year 11, by the time COVID had happened between year eight and year 11. And he's in his first year at college now and I've just had a letter saying, no, he's still on the waiting list, but it was two years from from referral, two years for Mm -hmm. assessment from, from referral. But I feel like now we're talking about this. I feel like maybe his school could have done a bit more at that time by saying he's got slow processing speed. So perhaps that's an indication mm-hmm. that there's something else going on here. Yeah, let's let's look into it. And I'm just wondering how schools can, in the same way with with staff. I know there are more. Um, it's more well known children are more likely to have that diagnosis Mm -hmm. these days there are still a lot of children who don't aren't there and do you need a diagnosis if we recognize things i don't know okay
1: Okay. well in in order to get a diagnosis you need to meet a threshold yeah okay so the thing is diagnosis is is medical so you have to meet a threshold to do that. Now I'm not I can't I'm not qualified to diagnose autism, but I have been part of the diagnostic pathway for five years whilst so I worked so for the Gloucestershire Advisory Teacher Pathway. And um as part of that, I had to do a teacher assessment where I had to do certain screenings in order to, and then also, you know, write write observations at home and at school, and then make my recommendations about whether I thought this child should go through for assessment. Um and you know that. That process is is if you are trained, then you can observe a child and go, well, of course, but you don't know what you're looking for. And so and also as well, the other thing is that's really, really. There's a, a huge lack of understanding about masking, right? I have seen children as long as young as one year old mask because I know what I'm looking for. Right? I've seen children that young pretend everything's fine. OK, because I know what I'm looking for. But everybody who is neurodivergent has to pretend to be neurotypical at times. You know, we've both talked about it in this conversation that, you know, as uh, adult women in our late 40s, we've both had to do that throughout stages in our career in order to mask. I don't think teachers know how prevalent that is. And there's a really great quote that I heard, which was from. Do you know Pete Warnby at all? I don't know. He's written really two amazing books. He's a he's a former English teacher. He's autistic. He's was on the waiting list for an ADHD diagnosis. He won't mind me saying this because he's very open about it. He wrote two books. One of them's called uh, Untypical, and it's about his experience of being autistic and you know it, in a neurotypical world. And the second one is called What I Want to Talk About, which is about special interests. And I've learned a huge amount from his books. One of the things that he says in Untypical is he talks about your neurodivergent child is scraping the window of tolerance all day long, right? So you're up here. Like, in terms of keeping it together, you're up here the whole time, right? And, you know, if anything comes along that you know that slightly tips you over the edge that's it your lid is flipped and you're going to go into meltdown or shutdown right and that's all day for the entire time and that's why you'll get kids who go home and explode because they have been masking their heads off all day long and then they come home and they drop the mask and it clatters down onto the floor and then they just cry for three hours or whatever because T was one minute late or something and you know and and the teachers will say and they mean it because it's true oh he's fine in school and you think well that's true he is fine in school because he's really really good at masking because he's intelligent enough to be able to cope with being at a mainstream school and actually he quite likes teaching he likes quite likes going to school because he really enjoys the learning ex- aspect of it but the social side of things and the sensory overload is too much for him so he comes home and he absolutely has to sit and rock for several hours or shut himself in his room and and that's like that's completely that's com- completely missed by a lot of teachers because they don't think that that's what's going on they don't realize the extent of masking that goes on um so, so you know that's that's the main thing really is so I would really like teachers to know what masking is
0: and, and understand- for parents as well yeah I've i I'm just really really quite um just tearful about that because you've just described my son you've just described him you know he coped in school all day he always said school is not school is not great is it It sits in rows and it just doesn't suit the way that and i feel so guilty that i didn't help him should... sooner you know that makes me feel like oh my goodness no, no, that's no, why it's... he's so angry when he came home every day that's why he's put his like you know through a wall in the house and because he's been trying to cope in school all day and it's it, we ju- it's just we don't we don't see it do we always
1: each you don't see it but you've got to take te- children take uh, take parents at face value mm.
0: it's,
1: masking is real and the thing about masking is it it, it induces fatigue and the fatigue can lead to burnout and the burnout and the shame of dropping your mask is what leads to the trauma. And when there's trauma, that's when you get the behavior problems. That's when you get the anxious non-attenders because of the trauma. And it's all comes back to masking. It all comes back to masking and thing is right. And then the solution, generally speaking, and again, look, everything is well meant, right? Everything is done out of kindness and love. We love the kids we work with. We do. That's why we go into teaching because we care. Deeply, right, really, really deeply, and we genuinely think, "Oh, look at him! He's Skippy Hoppy. He's having a lovely time. He's really enjoying me. Oh my God! He was giggling his head off in my lesson. You should have seen him. It was amazing." And they, you know, and genuinely, that is what happened. But it was a mask, right? So when the te, when the parent says he's coming home and melting down for three hours, take him at face value because that is what's happening. And then the reaction is to send the parent on a parenting course. Or some kind of parent blame, which again is not meant in a malicious way. It's meant as a way of trying to help the parent, but it it actually drives a wedge between between school and home, and then that can cause. This is where we've got all of these children who are out of school, who are anxious non-attenders. Because, you know, okay, so like I read, I did, I did a, wrote a paper about this a couple of years ago about, about anxious non-attenders who are autistic and, and my success in managing to get a small group in back into school individually. Um, And there was this tiny little research paper that I found because there's not enough research on it, a tiny little research paper I found from Autistic UK, which is a research charity. And they did this sort of this survey about this and they found that. of staff think the reason for anxious non-attenders is because of a problem with the child or a problem with the parent. And 90% of parents and children think that the reason for the anxious non-attending is is either uh, a sensory problem or a mental health problem or a social problem such as bullying. So you've got two completely different opinions there. So it's not really surprising that these things aren't matching up. So how can you possibly support those children to get back into school if staff and families are on completely different pages? The first thing is to understand each other and understand the dialogue that's going on and to make a relationship between school and parents. And until you get that and until you get that sense of belonging, you're not going to make any effective change.
0: And uh, I'm, I'm really interested in doing an episode on parental engagement and how you can engage parents better. Because for me, it's a it's a huge thing. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I could talk about this, as you can tell, I could talk about it all all evening. Um, but it's just, I'm so grateful to you. For just, I'm I'm surprised because I thought, you know, being Potentially ADHD myself, and having a son who's potentially ADHD with autism, and having been a teacher of, you know, young people for so long, that I would know quite a lot. But I mean, it's made me think, uh, there's there's always so much to learn, isn't there? And, oh, there's always things to learn. I always think that every day, you know, you don't, you really don't know what you don't know. No, you don't. So you've just got to keep, keep learning. Keep, I'm going to buy those books by Pete Warnby. And um, maybe my yes. son will read one of them potentially, although he struggles to read books. He likes yeah book, actually. I do was just listen? gonna say he likes an audio book. So he, we might be able to get him that. Um so you do lots of work, don't you, with um training for schools in terms of inclusion for neurodivergence and um all, all sorts of things. So if people want to find out more about you get in touch because they would like you to go and do some training in their school where can they find you what do they need to do
1: okay well i have a website which is uh, neuroteachers.com uh there's a blog on there which has a lot of this the, a lot of the things i've been talking about um i've got a whole series on differentiation and adaptive teaching uh, which are kind, I'm kind of going to be those are going to be extended over the summer months now because obviously we're recording this in July um, so there'll be more coming on uh, over the next year I've just done one on processing actually which is up on the website from last week so if you want to have a look at that if you're interested in training um, also I have the full list of my training courses and I have the course that I mentioned the embracing neurodiversity through adaptive teaching that's also available to do and I said that as I say that will be available as, as o- online as well so so if you are interested about that you can email me so my email address is katrina dot sorry katrina at neuroteachers.com um i'm on twitter at neuroteachers i'm on threads at neuroteachers uk threads yeah oh, you God, are brilliant. you are ahead of the curve well i said i was an early adopter didn't i you did. You
0: certainly are. I my, love it. By the my way, my son said he was 310,000th or something, maybe 130,000th joining threads. So you really, uh, you're at I the cutting am. edge.
1: I am. I'm, I'm. I'm like anything new like that. I'm all over it because, like, and that, know, me and Ted, I
0: apologize to you because I called you, I called you Katrina Lowry, and you called Katrina Lowry. So I apologize for my right. mispronunciation.
1: It's, it's well, it's the Welsh for Laura. Oh, okay. Uh, so uh, that's that's why it's it's Lowry, not Lowry. So that's okay.
0: So just so people know, it's at NeuroTeacher on Twitter. At NeuroTeachers,
1: um, yeah. And then it's um it's at NeuroTeachers UK on Instagram and threads. Um, and it's Katrina Lowry on uh LinkedIn. Oh, and I also have a Facebook page which is also NeuroTeachers. I'm highly contactable if you do want to get in contact with me I do get back I'm pretty good on a dm or anything so I will will definitely get back to you but yeah love brilliant. to help. anything to do in your inclusion I'd love to help
0: thank you so much for your time it's been brilliant to talk to you
1: you're welcome thank you
0: so how many things did you not know you didn't know that was really enlightening for me and for someone who has a child who has neurodivergence or is neurodivergent And being neurodivergent myself or identifying as being neurodivergent, it was really, really useful. But I think the value in that interview for you as a school leader is to recognise how you can support people in your school who are neurodivergent and the types of things that you can do and how you can support the young people more effectively as well. I would highly recommend the courses that Katrina does because she's just absolutely fantastic and you will learn so much about how you can support neurodivergence more effectively in your school. That is all we've got time for today. If you would like to find out more about coaching or any of the ways that I could support your school to improve teaching and learning through creating coaching communities, doing some leadership coaching, coaching with head teachers or the group coaching programs that I run or the Resilient Leaders programs that I run, I would be very happy to talk to you about how I could work with you and you just need to email me. It's Vicky at weleadwell.co.uk or you can visit the website weleadwell.co.uk and leave me a message there. You can have a look at some of the things that, that we offer at WeLeadWell on the website. Whatever you are doing this weekend, enjoy it. There is one and a half weeks to go or two weeks for some people until the summer holidays some people are already on their summer holiday so whatever is the case have fun and do do some things that you love doing take care of yourself take care of your staff and lead well this episode of the we lead well podcast was brought to you in partnership with progressive masculinity and headteacherchats.com.